Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vayechi, He Lived. The address is Brishit, Genesis, chapter 47, verse 28, through chapter 50, verse 26. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on December 16th of 2005. Note, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachar Banu Mikol HaAmim V'Natan Lanu Et Torah To Baruch atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, welcome to the final Torah portion in the book of Breshit, Genesis. Sefer Breshit is drawing to a close. And with that, we'll have our traditional um, blessing for the end of the book. Uh, so be sure to to listen all the way through to the end of the commentary so we'll get a special uh, closing blessing for the end of a, reaching a completion of a Torah study. For those of you who listen by way of Internet to these podcasts, I just want to say a quick word about the written and the audio teachings together. Um, the written commentaries are always available for anyone who wishes to read them. They are available at our website at graftedin.com and along the top of the uh, web page there's a global navigation bar, it's blue. You can click on the commentaries link and that'll bring you to uh, a section where you'll see most of my commentaries. Scroll down to where it says Torah portions, click on that and then you have each section uh, divided by book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then each commentary is listed there as well. You can click on the commentary name, or I believe you should be able to click on the little icon that says PDF, because each commentary is in a PDF document. You'll need Adobe Acrobat Reader or something like that to read each one. As compared to the audio commentary, now that is usually uh, updated and made available at the same time each week, um, and as when I get ready to mail them out each time of the week, usually I try and mail these out to you all, the audio version that is. Usually I try to get that mailed out um, earlier in the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at the very latest is my preference. However, I do work a full-time job, and I have a wife, which is also a full-time job. So uh, not to mention working at the synagogue that I attend uh, full-time there 
not uh, on staff, but working full-time behind the scenes with the commentaries, the website, um, the leadership training school, and all of the other goings-on that happen there. So I ask that you'll be patient, as sometimes the audio versions may not make it out to you uh, till maybe later on in the week, uh, perhaps even as late as Friday, which I know is pushing it. Uh, going into the Shabbat. But if you absolutely need to get the commentary earlier and you can't get the audio, at least go onto the website and read the written commentary uh, as, of course, I'm um, uh, reading the written material and and, um, highlighting the different portions that I feel are pertinent. Okay, So I wanted to say that real quickly before we get started into the study uh, today. All right, let's get into Parashat Vayechi. if you know, we've been following the life and story of the children of Israel as before they have been enslaved in Egypt. We have followed Abraham and the birth of Isaac and then the birth of Jacob and then, of course, the twelve sons and Dina, the daughter. And then the Torah focused on Joseph, who was a type and shadow of our Messiah, Yeshua. And this week, we conclude our study of the book of Genesis with this parasha, Vayechi, which means he lived. The he, of course, is Yaakov. Jacob lived. And the portion starts out with letting us know that how long he lived in the land of Egypt. Well, actually, we're going to read about the death of Yaakov in this particular parasha. Likewise, our study on Joseph will draw to a close with his death at the end of this book. During the study about the most famous son of Yaakov, I've attempted to show you, the readers, how that the Torah masterfully used his life to portray the life of our Messiah, Yeshua. And in no way did I intend to minimize the significance of Yeshua's divinity by using Yosef as a type and a shadow. In fact, what I've done has been done elsewhere using many other scriptural characters, including a man of whom we shall quickly become familiar with in our next parasha, Of course, I'm referring to the man by the name of Moshe, or Moses. I believe that the Torah was written so that we might attain to the goal that Hashem has set forth for us. And what is that goal? Namely, the righteousness that is found when we place our trusting faithfulness in His Son, Yeshua. Remember that according to a proper translation of Romans 10.4, the goal that the Torah is aiming at is our knowledge and placing our trust in the Messiah. That's the goal of the Torah. Moreover, in defining what sin is, the Hebrew word um, uh, as it's conveyed in its fullest definition is missing the mark. That's what the word sin means in Hebrew. This is what the Torah is giving to us. These are the reasons that the Torah has been preserved for us so that we can attain to the goal of of, uh, the righteousness of Messiah. And that goal is achieved as we place our trust in him. So as we study the pages of God's Torah, let's not lose sight of the fact that we are to be conformed into his image. There's a a reference to Romans 8, 28 through 29 that I'm making here. And of course... That image is attainable. The Torah does not present to us some unattainable goal. The Holy Spirit helps us to be conformed into the image of the dear Son of Yeshua. So, let's let's look into the Torah. Let's peek into the Torah for these insights, okay? This next section is entitled, The Choices We Make. The aging Israel is nearing his death, and he rightly 
calls for his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in order that he'd like to bless them. And we're all familiar with this. The aging father who's nearing death will bring his sons to his side, to his bedside, I imagine, so that he can give them the uh, inheritance parameters just before he dies. And, of course, typically these were um, words that were spoken to each boy or or. Uh, tribe member as he is going to move into leadership positions after the father's death and so it's significant for us as we realize and read through the through this uh, portion that the formula which of course was employed by Israel's father Yitzhak uh, this this is going to be the method as it were by which Adonai himself the Lord would prophetically identify the destinies of the offspring of Avraham it's almost as if, I don't know which comes first, whether God instructs the fathers to bring the sons together so that God can prophetically speak through the father to the sons about the days that are going to be following them, or is it rather that the father or the children of Israel, the people, the nearest in peoples, used this family tradition, as it were, um, and God just utilized it as well. I'm not sure which came first. At any rate, uh, the men were operating under the divine influence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, uh, when they spoke these verbal blessings onto their children, because they are, in fact, prophetic. And to be sure, as we learned in the case of Israel and his brother, Asaph, the verbal blessing was a coveted thing to receive. It was no light manner. So, keeping true to the pattern that Hashem has been displaying, in this particular case, the younger of the two brothers, Ephraim, he receives the preeminent blessing instead of his older brother. Now, that's not according to um, the tradition. The tradition says that the firstborn is to receive the blessing. And so this is why I can say um, unashamedly that the Holy Spirit must have been moving the men to say what they have to say. Because otherwise they're going against uh, tradition. And that and that's that's grounds for upsetting the whole apple cart. But at any rate, Jacob singles out the younger and gives him what we would normally think would be the blessing that is promised for the elder. And as I mentioned as well, this is the third time that this thing has happened. The first being when um, Ishmael and Yitzhak. You know, Yitzhak, the younger, gets the blessing instead of Ishmael. And the second time we read about it in the Torah was when Jacob and his brother Esau get blessed, and Jacob, the younger, gets the blessing instead of Esau. Now, you have to stop and scratch your head and ask, why does Hashem seem to confuse the issue, as it were, by circumventing the older brother? I believe that Hashem wants us, the readers, to realize that uh, as is taught elsewhere in the Torah, that he can and often does use what we might consider the weak things of this world to confuse that which is wise. The elder is supposed to be older and wiser. The firstborn is supposed to be the recipient of these things. In other words, we normally expect the older to be wiser and more suited to become the chosen one. Yet, Hashem has his way, and he chooses the younger ones to demonstrate his mighty power displayed through their own weaknesses and seemingly less importance. He doesn't do that all the time, but he seems to delight in displaying his power in doing that. This seems to also be the case, as we're going to read about, well, we may or may not read about it in these um, podcasts, but it certainly is the case with the future king of Israel, uh, David. In fact, with David, as I'm 
thinking about it. It's even more to the point with David. Why? Because he's not the second oldest, like it is in these other boys. He's, in fact, the youngest of all his brothers. He's the runt. And God skips over all of his previous brothers and uh, anoints the youngest one of all. So, Israel blesses Ephraim above his brother Manasseh. But he does include both of them in his immediate inheritance. So both boys get blessed. This can be observed in his wording to Yosef in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter. So we learn from these verses why Ephraim and Manasseh from this moment on are in fact counted with the other 12 tribes. Isn't that odd? After Joseph, I'm sorry, after after Jacob blesses uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, they don't um, remain as uh, the sons of Joseph. In fact, they become Joseph's brothers, if you think about it. So they're considered as half-tribes, along with the other brothers. Israel also institutes a well-known formula, I should say well-known to us today. It's used to down to this very day whenever fathers bless their sons. And we read it in chapter 48, verse 20. He predicts that future Israel, the nation, will bless their sons, asking Hashem to make them, the future sons of Israel, like these two boys here, in blessing and in good favor. In fact, anyone who has attended a conventional synagogue these days knows that this is the blessing that's spoken specifically for this occasion. May the Lord bless you and make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, fruitful and such. So, here in chapter 49, Israel's sons are the recipients of blessings that directly involve their individual actions. That is to say, um, Jacob remembers what they have done in the course of their life, and the blessing is attributed to them. In essence, um, Hashem, through Israel, blesses them according to what they've done, but simultaneously grants them grace for what they could not achieve on their own. That is to say, God doesn't lay all of their sins at their feet and send the blessing down the pipe because of that. Comparing the above-mentioned blessings of Yehuda with, per se, Shimon and Levi, we can see this. We can see the wording as we see the blessing going down to Judah and Levi uh, correspondingly. In the case of the latter, of, of Levi, with, I'm sorry, of Shimon and Levi, with their blessings, or the lack thereof, they directly point to their prior actions taken during the incident with Dina, their sister, when she was raped. Um, you can read about that in chapter 34 of Breshit. In this story, as we remember, they took matters into their own hands, much to the shame of their father Israel. Uh, 34, 30, and 31 is where we read that. Chapter 34, verse 30 and 31. This caused Israel shame, and so this is reflected in the blessing. Yet in the case of the former, Judah, nothing is mentioned of his shameful actions in chapter 38. Judah slept with Tamar, and this was uh, Jacob's um, uh, uh, handmaid. And yet um, in this uh, uh, blessing here, we don't read any mention of that. And so it's it's odd what Jacob is remembering and what he's not and how Hashem is using that. Still, Hashem seems fit or sees fit to bless him abundantly, uh, Judah that is, by promising to send forth a promised ruler from his loins. We've, we're familiar with this blessing in the church. Uh, amazingly enough, 
this promise of Shiloh, or Shiloh as it's pronounced in church circles, which is a title or name that has no corresponding Hebrew roots or stems relating to it. This name has been almost universally accepted by rabbis and Christian scholars alike as referring to the coming ruler, the coming Mashiach, or the coming Messiah. And just to prove my point, to show you that I'm not making this up on my own, I want you to observe the opinions of the early Judaism as is preserved for us in their writings. And I'm just going to give a few quotes, all right? Let's see. This first quote is from the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. Now, a Targum is a translation, an early first century translation of the Hebrew into um, Aramaic. Because by that time, uh, the people groups had uh, forgotten lot of Hebrew. Uh, I'm not saying they explicitly spoke or exclusively spoke Aramaic, but Hebrew was a challenge for them, so Aramaic was being used. That's what the Targums are for us. Let's read a quote from the Targum, okay? Quote, Kings and rulers shall not cease from the house of Judah until King Messiah comes. That's a quote from the Targum. Let's read another one, this time from the Midrash Rabbah to Genesis, uh, chapter, what is that, 28, verse 8. Quote, until Shiloh cometh, this alludes to the royal Messiah, and unto him shall the obedience, the uh, yichath, of the peoples be. Uh, he, the Messiah, will come and set on edge, macheth, um, the teeth of of the nations of the world, end quote. And then let's lift on one last quote here from the uh, well-known Talmud, this time the Babylonian version. Um, this is out of Tractate Sanhedrin 98b. The folio is 98b. Um, in the Babylonian Talmud, Rabbi uh, Yohanan said, quote, The world was created for the sake of the Messiah. What is this Messiah's name? The school of Rabbi Shila said, Quote, his name is Shiloh, for it is written, until Shiloh come, end quote. So you can see there, just from those three um, quotes there, that the ancient sages, the ancient peoples of Israel, read and interpreted this uh, blessing here over Judah as a messianic prophecy. It is not a Christian invention. And yet I know those of you listening to the podcast have heard your pastor mention that this, in, this is in fact a messianic blessing. Well, where do you think they got that notion? They got it straight out of the uh, annals of the histories of the Jews. Okay, let's keep going. Judah receives much favor despite his shameful actions. That much can be seen. So obviously God's grace is at work. We see that the Torah remains consistent when several centuries later a prominent Jewish rabbi, uh, if we can call him that, by the name of Rav Shaul, or Apostle Paul would be how you would know him, um, he would go on to explain that Hashem will have mercy on whomever he wills to have mercy on, and compassion on whomever he chooses to have compassion on. You can read that in Romans 9, verses 13 through 16. Obedience and disobedience. The Torah is full of blessings and curses based on our dynamic interaction with God and if we will recognize that, how much more will that motivate us to be um, obedient children? I wish to take the time we are, uh, while we're still earlier in the, in the Torah studies, um, I wish to take the time to deal with the scriptural topics of covenant and commandment. And this is going to pave the way to better understand our upcoming studies in the Torah in Sefer Shemot, 
the book of Exodus, as is our next parasha. Um, the Torah becomes a national constitution for the nation of Israel as it's given to them on Mount Sinai. And God um, spells out how they are to walk in his ways and to walk out covenant faithfulness. And so while we're here, let me just uh, give a, a, a maybe a, pre, a sneak preview of what we're going to be dealing with. All right. This next section is entitled Covenant and Commandment. In Hebraic thinking, the term covenant is synonymous with the term commandment. And so when we hear covenant and we hear commandment, they are they elicit similar uh, responses from a Hebrew thinker. The reason is because um, the way the Bible uses these terms and concepts, they are interwoven in such a way as to render them inseparable. To speak of the covenant is to speak of the commandments. Now I say commandment in singular because... Um, the whole book is one giant commandment to love the Lord and to obey him but um, and that is the covenant so if 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 an Israelite were to break the covenant, then it is spoken of as if he 's breaking the commandments and and vice versa so some people might say, "Can my postulation be substantially uh, be substantiated scripturally? I think it can, so let me read on and see if you 'll be convinced as well. In ancient suzerain treaties, uh, these are treaties between two peoples. Um, we had a, um, uh, a ruler or a leader who would maybe conquer or subjugate a lesser people and make them his vassal, make them his, his uh, subject, his, um, his uh, property, as it were. And in these particular treaties in the, near, in the ancient Near East, um, if, if the situation changed for one party of the two a covenant could be amended or renewed as it were to adapt to the new circumstances but only what was what would no longer fit between the two parties would be revised everything else remained in effect exactly as before and so um god is the ruler the uh, king who makes a covenant with his subjects the children of israel and as time goes on if the children of israel um if, if the dynamics of them changed a bit, for instance, let's say they went into slavery and then they came out of slavery or such, then um, the covenants could be amended. Or if they were repeatedly w wicked, the king could uh, rewrite the covenant, as it were, um, amend it a bit to change the situation or change uh, and adapt to the situation, the situation, as it were, between the two parties. The covenant itself remained in effect. They, they, God never broke the covenant between them. But uh, Israel needed the adaptation because they repeatedly broke their side of the covenant. You all know what I'm talking about because you're familiar with biblical history. So when we take these facts and look at the Mosaic covenant that's about to be cut at Sinai here in the upcoming book of Exodus, we have to ask ourselves, was there something wrong between the parties of the existing or previous covenants that, necessitat uh, that necessitated a renewal on God's part? Did um, God change, or did Israel change? Let's read the passage for the answer. I'm going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 32. I'm going to read this out of the Revised Standard Version. Quote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. We've heard this language before. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. End quote. So we read right away that God cuts the covenant with Israel 
after he brought them out of the land of Egypt, brings them to Sinai, of course. He cuts a covenant with them. He enters into a treaty with them. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Yet, looking back down through the lens of history, the prophet Jeremiah reminds us that Israel was faithless and broke covenant with God. Therefore, God is going to renew that covenant with his people because of the repeated violations of the covenant. Scripture goes on to describe that Hashem found fault with them, that is to say with Israel. So, you have to ask, how did they break the first covenant? Well, the answer is simple, by not keeping the commandments. Now, obviously they didn't have faith, otherwise they would have kept the commandments. So, someone might say, Ariel, they broke the covenant by not having faith. But in Hebrew language, or in Hebrew thinking, when lack of faith is, de- is, is present, then um, commandment breaking is also present. Observe. Let's to pull another quote out of the uh, prophets. This time I want to read from, I'm sorry, uh, from the Torah, that is. This time I want to read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 14. Again, out of the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. Quote, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples that are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. The writer of Deuteronomy, Moshe, goes on to say, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, there's our uh, connection there between covenant and commandment, to a thousand generations, and requits to their face those who hate him by destroying them he will not be slack with them. I'm sorry, he will not be slack with him who hates him. He will requit him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the ordinances which I command you this day. And because you hearken to these ordinances and keep and do them, there again is our link, the Lord your God will keep you with the covenant and the steadfast love which he swore to your fathers to keep. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. And the final verse says, You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle, end quote. So, that is lifted from Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, and we see quite explicitly that the language of covenant and commandment are interwoven with one another. Now, um, so someone may ask, Ariel, are you suggesting that mere commandment keeping is tantamount to covenant faithfulness? As I've said before, in Bible times, um, it, it all it took to be found righteous well, let me just ask the question, because I know that's probably what you're thinking. Are you saying that in Bible times, that all it took to be found righteous in God's sight was to just keep his commandments? 
I, I'm not trying to suggest that it's mere commandment keeping alone. So before I get labeled as a legalist, let me demonstrate God's view of true commandment keeping, not merely mechanical commandment keeping. I'd like to use a quote this time from some friends of mine, Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz. They are the authors of Torah Rediscovered. First Fruits of Zion published this book back in 1996. I want to lift a quote from pages 32 and 33. Quote, For those who trust Hashem for the promises, the proper order for faith and obedience is set by the sequence in which the covenants were given. In other words, faith must precede obedience. But the kind of faith accepted by Hashem is one which naturally flows into obedience. True obedience never comes before faith, nor is it an addition to faith. It is always the result of true biblical faith. To rephrase this in terms of the covenants, the covenant of promise with Abraham must come before the covenant of obedience with Moshe. If we were to put Moshe first, attempting to secure those promises by obedience, we would be going against Hashem's order. This, by the way, is the key to unlocking the difficult midrash used by Paul or Shaul in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. All we could hope for would be a measure of physical protection and a knowledge of spiritual things, but we could not achieve or not receive justification or a personal relationship with the Holy One through obedience to the Torah. It all had to start with faith. Avraham came before Moshe, but Moshe did not cancel out Avraham. The two complemented each other as long as they came in the proper order. End quote. So, based on what um, Ariel and Devorah are teaching us there, we see that commandment breaking was the reason that God needed to renew the covenant. Commandment breaking, or other words, covenant breaking. In a sense, when Israel walked away from the covenant, when she forsook the commandments of God, she was declaring to God that she had no interest in him. And ultimately, this unfaithfulness was seen as grounds for divorce. And now I'm using a very strong word, divorce. You, uh, you'll definitely have to get proof that God divorced Israel because um, even before I came to the harvest back in 2000, I would never have thought um, that God divorced Israel. I just wasn't familiar enough with the uh, passages on, on my own. But I've since done some research, and, uh, and I'll give the passages to you here right now. Isaiah 54, 1 through 10. In that passage, you'll have to go back and read it on your own, but in that passage we observe that the faithful husband, Hashem, is seen promising the unfaithful wife, who is Israel, reconcilement unto himself after a brief period of rejection. This brief period of rejection is found in verses 7 through 8. Why did God reject her? Why? Because she willfully walked out of the covenant agreement in order to pursue alien love, causing Hashem to act in accordance with his very own Torah, his very own law, and do what? Give her a bill of divorcement. You can reference Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where God instructs that the hardened, may, uh, um, the hardened mate uh, um, is given a bill of divorcement because of that. We can also reference Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In this passage, we see that God is the husband and Israel is the wife. Verse 1, the first part, verse 1a, reinforces what Moshe stated in Deuteronomy. 
Verses 1b through 7 show that the unfaithful bride, Israel, did not remain pure, but adulterated with another lover, spurning the sorrow and the fury of her first husband, Hashem. And in verse 8, after desiring her to return to him, Hashem instead hands her a bill of divorcement, a get. And this is based on her refusal to remain a faithful bride to him alone. She refused to be faithful to him. And so in verses 11 through 15 of this passage, the faithful husband, Hashem, pleads with his unfaithful wife to return to him and find forgiveness because he will grant her forgiveness if she returns. But instead, she persists in her adultery. Thus, the unfaithful bride walked out on the marriage covenant to pursue other sexual interests, causing the faithful husband to what? Write her a bill of divorce. Did Hashem wish to write her this bill? Well, according to Genesis, he desires unity for eternity. But, as we read, sadly, hard-heartedness drove his wife to force, as it were, God's hand of divorce upon her. So, we see who's at fault. That's why Jeremiah can say, finding fault with them, she, Israel, willingly left God. He, God, always remained faithful, waiting for her to return. And in fact, God will and did woo Israel back to himself and uh, renew the covenant with the renewed um, vows that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 31. Does it make sense to us now as we begin to read down through the Torah? I know it confuses a lot of students as they say, well, God left Israel and therefore God has not um, uh, taken a bride uh, since he left Israel, or some say that God took the church as his new bride. No, 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 no. He is, in fact, renewed his vows to Israel through the renewed covenant, and in fact, we see the inaugurating of this betrothal, uh, renewed covenant, as it were, to the Gentile side of Israel with the coming of Yeshua. Let's move on. <laughs> 